going to uh, we're going to begin. So uh, a few people are running late, but we're going to move forward. So. Okay, we're going to start. Sorry. Uh, so welcome to today's aid seminar. We are, uh, uh, some other people are running late, so I'm going to do the introduction so we can move forward. Uh, first of all, um, for nursing and CME credits, I have to let you know that uh, you have to attend 80% of the uh, seminar to receive credit. Brian Marsh is a member of our planning committee, and he is a consultant for Gilead Biosciences and no other members of the planning committee have any uh, conflicts of interest, nor does our speaker have uh, any conflict of interest. Your activity code for uh, uh, credits is uh, Q-U-V-M, all lowercase, Q-U-V-M. Okay, we're... Very uh, pleased to uh, welcome Betty Morgan here uh, uh, to speak on the challenges uh, uh, related to managing care uh, in patients with HIV and addictive disorders. Um, <clears throat> Betty is uh, Associate Professor Emeritus uh, uh, at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. Uh, she uh, received her uh, uh, PhD in nursing from uh, William Connell uh, School of Nursing at Boston College, her Master of Science in Nursing uh, uh, at Yale University, and her uh, undergraduate uh, degree is from the University of Massachusetts at uh, Boston. She has a long history of uh, uh, providing lectures uh, for the New England AIDS Education and Training Center. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier this morning saying that uh, uh, her talk was the first one that uh, the New England AIDS had ever done about pain issues related to uh, addictive disorders. So, uh, and I said, I think it's about our first one as well. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to Betty and uh, uh, she will uh, take us down an interesting road. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Can you hear me okay? I would like to not use the mic. Okay, I, if you need it. Yeah, there, and I will grab this. Okay. Also, I have some clinical background. Um, actually, when I first started doing AIDS care many, many years ago, it's in the mid to late 80s, um, and ADT was an experimental drug. I started working on the only dedicated AIDS unit in, in New England, I believe, at that time, which was at the Shattuck Hospital, which they playing fast. And I did a lot of inpatient care, um, and then we developed an outpatient program, and I did some, actually did some home care, as well as education and support. I mean, you'll hear about that. Support is a number of I have a tremendous amount of information for you, and I'm going to go through much of it first half very quickly. So that's my email address. I'm going to send Richard my slides, but feel free to contact me if you want to copy of the slides. So I'm going to jump right in. Um, I did actually look to see who's here. Usually I ask people, but um, I already looked to see what kind of people, you know, what kind of background you have. So thank you for coming. I, Context is always important, and I 
we live in a society that loves pills. Um, and I think that's a really important issue. This is a very old slide. I forget, actually, 75 or 95, I can't remember. I can't really read that well. But this doesn't include opioids at all. And if we were to redo this slide today, it certainly would be there for many of those age groups. Um, the other context that we're living in right now is that we are in currently in and have been in and out for the last 10 to 15 years an opioid epidemic. Um, it seems to have a resurgence and then it kind of quiets down and then it's a big issue again. And I may ask you some questions about New Hampshire in particular in a few minutes, but Massachusetts, it's really important that as providers we maintain some sanity on the issue because there really is other things happening. And I'll, I'll touch on that in a couple of points. Um, the other thing that is not widely out there is that we're living in an epidemic of pain as well. And there was a research study um, done by NIH that I referred to in the slide, I think, um, about four years ago. And it ended up in a pain in America um, uh, report. And there are over 100 million people in the United States living with chronic pain. That's not a figure you hear about. You hear about all the people dying of opioid abuse or misuse, um, but you don't hear about all the people with pain. And so it's a very complicated issue. So what we're going to talk about today is a brief overview of pain and HIV disease, some assessment issues. And that's the easy part. I'm going to assume there's a fair amount of knowledge already in, the, in those two areas. And then we're going to talk about a framework for safe prescribing and the ability to identify prescription drug use or misuse or abuse. So uh, as Richard said, I was fascinated. About two years ago, Massachusetts New England AIDS Education uh, group asked me to do a lecture on pain. And I asked, you know, had there been one prior to doing it? The answer was no, which I think is stunning. Um, but in fact, um, it has not been a topic that's been widely discussed in AIDS care, even though as clinicians, you probably see it every day. Um, so it is common, neglected, and undertreated. And there's been a fair amount of research, well, some research, I shouldn't say fair amount. Um, pain control really needs to be addressed throughout the course of the disease. Um, Dame Cecily Saunders was one of the hospice and palliative care founders. And she, um, in that population, talked about the concept of total pain. But I think that is something that we're going to talk about that we need to think about, not just the physical piece of it, but the psychological and social piece, as well as the spiritual piece of it. Um, so prevalence, you can look at studies and find a wide variety of prevalence of pain in HIV disease, 30 to 88%. It's generally listed as moderate to severe pain. Um, and people with AIDS oh, almost always report more than one pain in sight. So as you're doing an assessment, you talk about the pain, and the, usually people have one particular area that they focus in on, but then you go back and start all over again and say, where else do you have pain? Um, pain in HIV is also associated with disease progression. That um, makes a lot of sense. 
um, some of the opportunistic infections and the effects of highly active antiretroviral treatment. People are, it's interesting, when I'm giving this talk, it depends on where I am. Some providers have said they're seeing less neuropathy pain as a result of our, some people are saying they still see that a fair amount. How about here? Is it common or not so common? So, lots of old timers, but the old timers. That's what I would expect. So these are some of the diseases that are related. Um, the common pain syndromes, GI pain, chest pain syndromes, neurological especially, rheumatological, and then painful dermatological conditions. This is, again, something you probably are very familiar with. Um, they're also, so we said that pain in HIV was undertreated. There are specific groups where it's even more undertreated. Women, for some reason, uh, have increased pain frequency and intensity, non-corporation, people with current or history of IV drug use, and people with psychological distress, and decreased emotional control. Um, so those groups we need to pay special attention to. And the sad statement is that improvement in management in HIV overall has not been seen to be uh, to increase or improve the pain management in general. So it's an area where we need to do a lot of work still. So this is Pam. We're going to talk about Pam throughout the discussion. This is a patient I actually follow. And you'll see from, from some of the meds that I followed her or what I started seeing her a while ago. 42 years old, Caucasian. Oh my goodness, I thought I changed that mother of an 11-month-old girl uh, at the time that this took place. Advanced HIV disease, poor neurological functioning, on that medication regime, multiple resistant mutations and resistance. Um, also have C with three courses of treatment, um, sustained remission, did develop HIV rebound during, during the last treatment. Also has a history of osteochondriasis, lower abdominal pain, pelvic discomfort, diarrhea, cervical spine disease, significant weight loss, currently being worked up for malignancy with abdominal lymph node biopsies. So medically complex, I'm not giving you her whole history just now, but remember this piece. So what is pain? Um, this is a definition hopefully you've all seen. It's a complicated issue. It's always subjective. Um, we learn about pain through our early experience. So I try and remember what my, my early experience, and I'm sure I had pain before this, but what I can remember is falling off my tricycle. And for me, having daddy pick me up and kiss it and make it better. Um, but compare that to many of our patients, and I'll come back to this issue again, who might have experienced abuse at the hands of a provider. For, for me, working with people with HIV and addictive disorders, I have to say 99% of the women had abuse in their history. Probably men approached that, but they did not talk about it as freely or as often. Um, so, I, but I sort of operate thinking it's there unless I learn otherwise. Um, and compare that history of a painful situation with my falling off my trike. Uh, 
we define pain differently for everyone. Um, and I think we need to understand that. Nurses know Margot McCaffrey's definition of pain. It's, it happens whenever the person says it does, and it is whatever they say it is. So pain is not physical dependence. People who have chronic pain um, will have physical dependence and tolerance. Um, this, you mentioned something earlier. Many of us may have had some experience with, with chronic pain. We will have these issues. So physical dependence simply means if the medication, if you've been taking pain medication for X amount of time, and we believe it, it, you need about 10 days to two weeks of round-the-clock or, or you know, um, optimal pain care to develop dependence somewhere in that time frame. Um, and then the drug is abruptly withdrawn, you're going to go through a withdrawal. That's what physical dependence is. So chronic pain patients who are taking medication, opioid medications for years have dependence. Um, often people also develop tolerance, so you need more of the drug to get the same effect that you initially got. It's, I think tolerance is an interesting concept, and I, I have to say it's mysterious because I've also seen people who are on a very stable dose of opioids for long periods of time who don't seem to develop tolerance. Uh, but many people do and need more of the drug. Addiction is totally different. So physical dependence and tolerance may be, may be present in a chronic pain population, but addiction is not necessarily there. So addiction is a primary chronic neuro neurobiological disease with many, many different manifestations. The four C's are what important. Impaired control over use, compulsive use, continued use despite harm and craving. Those are really, that's the shorthand way to remember how addiction is different. Is this a concept people are aware of? Pseudo-addiction. It is and iatrogenic, so the healthcare system essentially causes this. It's caused by under-treatment of pain. So we have someone with chronic pain, we are under-treating them. They look like they're drug-seeking because we're not adequately treating them. It's a difficult decision to say this is pseudo-addiction. It's not something most people come to on their own. I really uh, endorse team collaborative efforts and working with us, these uh, patients. And so often it is a team decision. It can generally only be distinguished from addiction by increasing the pain med medication. And then the pain behaviors go away, the, the drug-seeking behaviors go away. Um, hyperalgesia is also an interesting phenomenon. It's a neuroplastic change in pain perception um, so that people are hypersensitive to pain. Uh, interestingly enough, and I've not had tons of experience with this, but I've worked, some of my colleagues, nurse practitioner colleagues who've worked in pain clinics where they've identified hyperalgesia and slowly and with a tremendous amount of work with the patient, discontinued pain medication and patients have so, but it's a hard sell. We may come back to that point. Um, so there, I said 100 million 
people in the country with chronic pain, um, undertreatment is usually due to patients under-reporting, us under-prescribing and inpatient, nurses under-administering. Right? Um, also, people obviously with addictive disorders and substance abuse disorders have probably a more difficult time and more barriers. Um, because of our lack of acknowledgement about pain, our lack of knowledge, uh, knowledge about addiction, and our fears of being kind. Um, that is a very real and very uh, common problem. Opiophobia is rampant in this country. It's rampant among the patients we deal with. It's rampant among the general public, the families, and among ourselves as well. Um, so, so why is undertreatment <coughs> such a big issue? Why, why should we be worried about it? Well, there are all sorts of physical problems that have been associated with undertreatment of pain. Um, you know, immobility, sleep disorders, immune dysfunction, which in HIV is really important, anxiety falls, depression, all sorts of problems. But probably one of the biggest issues that I think is just starting to get some attention is that if you have someone with an acute pain syndrome that is inadequately treated, the likelihood that they will go on and develop a chronic pain syndrome is increased. So. It really behooves us as professionals to be aggressive for acute pain treatment. And then when pain should be developing, then back off so that people don't go on and develop a chronic pain syndrome. Um, and also, all these consequences are doubled and tripled when you have one of the disorders. People will have all of those uh, problems listed above. So, Another thing to think about, both with pain and addictive disorders, and obviously with HIV, is that the prevalence of some psychological problems. And so I'm a psychoclinical specialist. That's my, my background. Um, this is the area that is particularly of interest to me. Depression is very common in HIV, in pain, and addictive disorders. Very common. Anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse disorder. So, what, what we know about pain, particularly pain, depression, and anxiety, is if you're not treating all three, you're not adequately treating any of them, and it gets to be a vicious cycle. Um, and then I mentioned the abuse, um, childhood abuse, and traumatic injury also can have a major effect on all of these issues. So people often ask, when we're looking at the pain population and people treated with opioids, how much risk is there for an addictive problem? Um, and as you can see, in the general population, it's pretty small. Um, there may be some what are called aberrant um, medication-taking behaviors, and we're going to come back to those towards the end. And there may be some prescription drug misuse. Hopefully, I'll help you define um, those issues and, and be able to think about when addiction is really the concern. So the published rates of abuse and or addiction in chronic pain populations are not insignificant, but they're not as huge as many people think they are. 3 to 19% is what most of the studies have really focused around. Um, 
and the people that are at most risk are at risk are, are the same have the same issues as people at risk in the general population. Um, so the good predictors of who may be at risk are people with past cocaine use, history of alcohol or marijuana use, and actually I should have added to this tobacco use. Um, that somehow stands out. Lifetime history of substance use disorder, family history of substance abuse disorder, as well as legal problems. Oh, there's the sorry. And a history of severe depression or anxiety. So the problems of the people, if you're doing your assessment, that you may want to zero in on. So now we'll move into assessment. Um, I think the probably the key thing that we need to think about, and remember, I'm a psychiatric nurse, so I'm not surprised I'm saying this, but patients think we're not going to believe them. If you have a history of an addictive disorder and you have pain, patients expect we are going to think they're lying. So our very first and probably most important job is building that trust and building that relationship. Um, I am a firm believer that that's probably 50% of the job. Um, that after that, we can come, come up with all the tools that, that I'm going to discuss. Um, talking to people about coping mechanisms. And so when we're talking about an addictive disorder, and particularly with most of the people that I've worked with clinically, um, these were not people who developed their addiction problem in their 30, 20s or 30s. They developed it primarily in Boston, in the inner city population, when they were 11, 12, and 13. So guess what? When you ask about coping behaviors, they can't come up with methods. So that's a big job to help people come up with other methods of coping, but an important one. Always checking for collateral information. Focus on function. And so we're going to come back to this point um, at the end that one of the key pieces I'm going to use and talk to you about each visit when we're assessing your pain <coughs> is how your function has improved with treatment. And you do whatever the activities of daily living are that are important to you. And so setting very clear goals about that is important. Um, doing the assessment for substance use and risk for addiction, other med medical and mental health problems, and then the obvious physical mental status exam. And going back to this every time is a new point of I've listed some assessment tools. I occasionally use assessment tools, but I really rely primarily on my interview and on that, on a zero to 10 scale, with zero being no pain and being the worst pain ever, how do you experience it? However, um, I often will, almost always, ask, so, when you had the worst pain ever in your life, how, what was that? And how would you rate that pain? And then today's pain corresponds to that, however. That often doesn't get me much difference. You know, most of the patients I work with say pain is 9, 10, 400 um, on a 0 to 10 scale. That, that is usually the response. Um, but I always start that discussion about comparing different kinds of pain. And then I say to people, and I think this is one of the most important things, 
At what let you know, so what function is important to you? Do you want to be able to visit your family? Do you want to be able to go out for a walk? Do you want to whatever it is the patient may identify as them wanting to do? That's a realistic um, thing for them to be able to do and a more realistic goal for you to work with them on. At what level of pain do you think you could do that? And the, Immediate answer is always zero, and that is a golden opportunity to say, you know what? We rarely get people to zero. And I think that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that we've done as healthcare providers. Somehow, and I don't think people have said the goal is zero, but somehow that's been the message that patients have heard that the goal is zero. I, do any of you have pain here today? I would expect several of you to. I, if I stand for too long, I have pain. So, but we learn to function with it. And so that is really what we need to change in terms of our assessment. But you have um, those, the availability of those tools. Anything that interferes with our communication with patients is gonna create some problems in terms of our assessment. So again, um, that population that may not get as, as good pain treatment When I look at this list, I read drug users, women, especially African-American women, for some reason that I've never seen a good explanation for. The very poor, the very ill, the very old, and the very young, who gets good pain treatment? <laughs> Not too many people. White men, white middle-aged men, maybe, <laughs> maybe, um, but so. Um, so again, Remember that vicious cycle of depression, anxiety, and pain I talked about. If we're not treating the comorbid problems, um, we are likely to not be treating the pain adequately. Um, substance intoxication and withdrawal also gets into the mix with this population. And so sometimes we mistake the agitation, anxiety of drug withdrawal for drug seeking or uh, some other explanation I think we need to be careful and the group that I work with basically will have a drug of choice but also may take anything that they have access to and so may not tell them about the benzos may not tell the providers about the benzos that they're also taking which of course is a bigger concern if we're not withdrawing somebody appropriately and then we're taking a lot of benzos we can end up somebody not only agitated but perhaps with grand seizures and actually I've seen that happen a couple of times. Um, so empathy is um, hopefully you all know the cage. Um, it's primarily structured around alcohol but the cage aid um, can substitute the words drugs for alcohol um, and so a, a score of one to two is uh, indicative of a further assessment for older people for two, uh, one, a, a positive score of one is indicative of uh, um, further assessment. Um, some more tools, and I'm gonna talk for a minute about the opioid risk tool, which is the one that I have had the most experience with. It's a five item, Initial risk assessment, so it looks at, in a pain population, who may be at risk for developing an addictive problem. Um, and it stratifies the risk into low, moderate, or high risk. Family history, personal history, age, 
pre-adolescent sexual abuse in past occurrence psychological disease are the main areas that this risk tool looks at and it helps you stratify the risk. And then there is one final screening tool, the single-use questions, and you can ask either if, it's, if alcohol is involved, um, do you sometimes drink beer or wine with other alcoholic beverages, how many times, and a positive answer is anything over zero, and how many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or a prescription medication for non-medical reasons, and a positive screening is anything over zero as well. So that's a simple one, one question for people to ask, um, to get, try and get a handle. So let's come back to Pam for a minute, and I'm going to give you a little bit more information about her. So she has past history of heroin and cocaine abuse, but hasn't used drugs, so she's been sober for 12 years. Um, part of that chunk of time she was in prison. Um, she has had a diagnosis of major depressive disorder and was treated for years with Zoloft. She wanted to stop treatment. Um, and after much, much discussion, we tapered her soul off. And she's had no recurrent um, episodes of depression until current time. Um, she does have some more complaints of pain, has been managed with OxyContin for the past two years with absolutely no problem. But new complaints of anxiety and irritability in the past year have been related to increasing her medical problems. She refused to go back on antidepressants. She didn't like the way they made her feel. Um, and so we, I increased her therapy sessions um, as a way of, of working with her. And I was anticipating, because her medical condition was continuing to worsen, that she was going to really need to go back on antidepressants. But I was trying to meet her where she was at. She didn't want them, so let's see what else we could do. Um, so one day in clinic, and now I, I didn't get a chance to ask you, but my um, psych part of the HIV clinic was across the hall from the medical office. So one day she saw her medical provider walk across the hall to see me. I didn't know what had transpired in the medical appointment, but she walks into my office really screaming, um, telling me I have to have more pain meds and I need some value as well. She knew from past that I, were, I was interested in pain, I had done some research, and that the primary HIV docs would consult with me about pain treatment. So I didn't, wasn't quite clear what had come up in her medical appointment. But remember this, we're going to leave her again, back to her again. So um, obviously, what we want to do with her is thoroughly system, so I'm just going to, I'm going to have to talk to the primary HIV doc. Um, I'm going to do another psych assessment. I'm going to look at her substance abuse history again, looking at what worked for her and what didn't work for her again, um, try and assess her function. And for me, because this was so different, the why now question was, was clearly one of the biggest issues. Um, what, what has changed? Because she had done well quite a chunk of time. So as we start into talking about safe prescribing, um, multimodal care is really the ideal. I don't know what your clinic has for resources, but if you have the HIV care, the psych care that goes along with it, the pain care that goes along with it, addiction, social work, complementary therapies, and spiritual care, 
wonderful. And I, I don't move up here and, and join your clinic. Um, you know, I'm struck with, we know that that kind of comprehensive care is really good for patients. Most places don't have it. Um, and we had some wonderful programs in Boston. Uh, they seemed to close about a decade, decade and a half ago. And what took their place was all these big interventional programs um, where you do you know, some fancy um, IV treatment and, and different kinds of therapy, but the multimodal approach is, is not present in that crisis, uh, which is a big problem. Um, I'm a firm believer in non-pharmacological treatments. I've seen them be ex the most effective treatment for some people, um, and in combination with other things that are great. We can't forget the non-opioids. Exercise. When I'm asked to see somebody with chronic pain, <coughs> I develop a program and an approach, I always, always, always include some exercise. If it's somebody who's wheelchair-bound or bed-bound, they get an exercise program. It is part of what helps people. Moving whatever parts of your body are staying stationary or are painful is a good approach. Um, and cultural issues are huge. You know, I could be standing here talking about that for an hour today, so I'm not. Um, so the main overriding principles and goals, listen to the patient, if it's always their um, report of pain that we have to listen to, and empathize with whether we can treat it with what they want or not is another issue, but we can empathize with their pain. Um, we also need to address those unrealistic expectations. Getting to zero is almost never a realistic expectation for chronic pain. It just isn't. Um, and patients don't know that, they won't be happy with it, but you're being honest with them. Um, reassessing is really important in every visit. And what we're, what, one of the main goals is optimal functioning with the least side effects. So function is really important. In the last, um, so last few months, last three months, there have been two major pain guidelines published nationally um, that are quite different. And I'm, I, I have no conflict of interest, but here's a bias. <laughs> um, the National Pain Strategy Guidelines are excellent. They were developed by pain providers, expert pain providers. Um, I gave you the website. Hopefully you can read that. Um, and I'm going to give you a couple of uh, bullets about what they're about. The CDC guidelines have been very, very controversial, in no small part because one of the things that um, is presented in the CDC guidelines is to avoid morphine um, milligram equivalents over 90 milligrams a day. Now, the population I've worked with, 90 milligrams a day is a drop in the bucket from many, many people. The CDC guidelines are saying you should never go there except in really exceptional cases. And so that's been one of the things that's gotten a lot of negative press from pain practitioners. The NPS guidelines really are comprehensive guidelines and I think a fine tool to follow. So that's all I'm going to say. So when, when are we going to talk about using opioids? 
time we're getting to this. Um, moderate to severe pain, significant impact on function, um, significant impact on quality of life, and other therapies have been unsuccessful. So it's not necessarily where you start, but where you end up. And the patient agrees to very close monitoring because in 2016, that is what the expectation is, that we're gonna do really close monitoring of these people. Um, unfortunately, there is a tremendous, tremendous need for pain, chronic pain research and outcome research with opioids. The research is horrific, um, to, be, to be blunt. Uh, most of the literature are literature surveys and uncontrolled case studies. There are very few randomized controlled trials, and they're only a four-month duration for the most part. Uh, so they're short trials, not looking at really chronic pain. They're mostly industry-sponsored. The pain relief in some of the studies that has been done has only been modest, and there's been limited or no functional improvement. So you'd say, okay, if you just went by the research, which is what some of the CDC reporting did, they're saying avoid opioids. Um, but right now, we, for people with moderate to severe pain, we don't have another good option. So there's a huge need for research, huge. Anybody here interested in pain and want to start that? Um, hopefully it would get funded fairly well. So how do we look at what the benefit of opioid treatment is? So we want to start by assessing the current function. Um, what can the patient expect to do with opioids that they cannot do now? So this is the goal setting. We need to think about specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic, and time-dependent goals. Um, and also, as we, if we're starting opioids, talk to patients that this is a test. It may not work. We are reevaluating at your next visit or in a month or whatever it is that you think is a realistic period of time. But make it very clear it is a test. It is not a forever drug necessarily. Um, we need to assess for the risks, and these are things that you all know. Um, and the risk assessment needs to be consistent, and the monitoring needs to be match the risk. So if we think it's somebody with high risk, we're going to see them more often. Um, and sometimes that sort of flies in the face of what we want to do because often people are argumentative, they, they question our judgment, they question our integrity. You may not want to see them again real soon. You may need to leave the visits over. In reality, what you need to do is see them much more often. Um, and that sometimes is difficult. So go back to Pam quickly. What are Pam's big risk factors? History of drugs. Yep, absolutely. History of depression um, and history right now, current not lack of treatment, really optimal treatment for her depression. Um, she also has lots of stressors. Um, she's got multiple medical problems that are getting worse. We don't really have a solid handle on what's going on with her. Um, and, we, and I've given you no information about lifestyle issues. We'll come to that in a few minutes. Um, so again, this is how we set goals. Uh, past, uh, 
Steve Pasek, who's a psychologist, came up with the four A's, and then more recently, a fifth A has gotten added. So we want to assess every time in terms of pain treatment. What's the analgesia like? What are the activities of daily living? How they've changed, improved, hopefully. What are the adverse events? What are the aberrant medication-taking behaviors that we're going to talk about in a minute? And, uh, and the last is affect. So mood is the person depressed, agitated, anxious. Um, so assessing and documenting benefits and harms to continue providing opioids, there must be actual and functional benefit. So when we start somebody and then reevaluate them, say two weeks later, uh, and there's no improvement, you may think about increasing the dose. You may think about increasing the frequency of the medication. You're not going to think about backing off immediately. But you're going to work with the person around what the optimal treatment is. And then reassess again. And so after a couple of increases, if you're not seeing any change in function or pain rating or mood or ability to do those, those uh, um, activities of daily living, then it's not the right drug. It is not the right drug. And that's a very simple way for us to talk to people about it. But we, we get caught up in the patients blaming us and being angry with us and don't find the, the language very easily. Benefit must outweigh the risks. It must out. So if you see people getting um, a little lethargic, a little sleepy, perhaps um, having some trouble with their gait that you think might be related to the related to the opioid, and there's no functional improvement, no improvement in the pain rating, it's not the right drug. It is not the right drug. Um, so that, that's an important piece. So how do we Contracts and agreement forms, I'm going to talk about those in a second. Drug screening, prescribing small quantities. The people that you're most concerned about, small quantities with frequent visits. That is the way to go. Um, single pharmacy, single prescriber. No, this, you know, I'm on vacation, so somebody else is going to prescribe while I'm away. We're going to I'm your prescriber. I'm going to plan. I am on vacation. So I'm going to give you this script now. This will take you through my vacation. Um, one prescriber. Pill counts, sometimes having people, calling people in before their appointments so you can assess how many pills they have left because what do we know about addiction? People don't have control over it. So often my people would, would you know, the first week of the script, that everything's gone. The entire prescription is gone. Um, and pharmacogenetic testing. If you had some lectures about pharmacogenetic testing, it's an interesting new piece. Uh, you know, obviously with HIV disease, we've been using um, genetic testing for a while. With pain, it's a relatively new option. And so we can now see that, you know, it's all looking at the CPY, CYP, CPY, uh, cytochrome P450 uh, enzymes which drugs will work for this person and which won't. Um, it, and most people who've had one or two drug trials for opioids and, and are still not doing well on insurance will cover for pharmacogenetic testing to give you some clue about how what, what drugs people can respond to best. Um, contracts and agreements are, you know, I, I think primarily 
a time for us to really talk about the benefits and risks of opioids for patients. Um, they're not they're not something to be handed to people to sign and then we hold them to them and it's like a ha ha, I've caught you because you violated the contract. It's a time to educate and discuss. And take some pressure off of us because this is our policy. This is what we do. We do pill counts on all our patients. We do urine drug screens on all our patients. This is what we do in this group. Um, the efficacy is not well established and there aren't any standard forms, although I've given you uh, a site for a, a possible form. Um, but informed consent is really the way to look at these treatment programs. And talking about the side effects, the physical dependence and tolerance, drug interactions, obviously in the opioid epidemic, that's a key, key issue. Um, people are, and we're starting to see more and more literature about maybe identified as a heroin uh, overdose, but there were also you know, this, this, this drug. And proper disposal of medication. People know how we all used to think flushing down the toilet, or and that's not the way anymore. There are, fortunately, lots of communities have take back days for medication where you can just bring your medication. But the other thing that people can do if they're at home is use either um, kitty litter, wet kitty litter, grind up the, the pills, put them in wet kitty litter, or coffee grounds and dispose of them. So that's really what's correct disposal at this point in time. Uh, urine drug tests. You need to know what the lab reports. Um, this was going back some years, but we did some drug, some urine testing, and didn't know that clonopin wasn't included in the benzo profile. Major <laughs> issue because methadone and clonopin are uh, the favorite combination in Boston frequently. Um, so asking the person, if I checked your urine right now, what would I find? That is, you frequently will get an honest answer. So thinking about random versus scheduled, observed versus non-observed. If it's someone really high risk, you may have to observe them giving you the urine specimen. And yes, there are ways to get around that even when you're observing. Um, <laughs> oops. Um, Prescription monitoring programs. Actually, when I was getting ready to do this, I, I had an old slide that I took out because it was, I think, 2005 or seven, um, that had a, a picture of the United States with the, the places that had prescription monitoring programs, and New Hampshire was one that didn't as of that day. Do you know? Um, and is it mandatory that you look at it before you prescribe opioids? That's what you say, something probably. It's an important resource for us, though, to see who's, who's doctor shopping. Um, so, if people are not having enough benefit from the opioid, um, we need to reassess the, the factors. Is the disease perhaps getting worse? Is that why they're not having the benefit? Um, Reattempt, look at, you know, re-look at the treatment of the underlying process and the comorbid illnesses, considering, consider escalating the dose again as a test. Um, but if there's no effect, that equals no benefit. And so we are not gonna continue prescribing opioid. And that's really the way you start talking to people. We're not seeing a benefit, so we're not gonna just keep going. We're not gonna just keep going. We're gonna have to 
change the, the approach here. Um, if there's too much risk, so if we're seeing some of those aberrant medication taking that I still haven't defined for you, um, then we're going to try and look at why that's happening. Do we need more education? Do we need a higher dose? Does, does this person really need uh, addiction treatment? Or are they diverting the drugs? Um, and one last thing before I think we get to the aberrant behavior. So um, there are people who are very opioid resistant. They are, there are those people. Not all pain is opioid responsive. And so, we need to try and identify, is this person who, somebody, this would be somebody who the pharmacogenetic testing would be helpful for. Liability exists, so document, document, document. Um, it's not just a nice to-do. There have been cases now where both physicians and, and nurses and institutions, uh, mostly nursing homes, have been sued for not providing adequate so everybody worries that we're going to over-medicate, but we need to find a balance because not under-treating or not treating is also a problem. So how do we identify? Um, this is a differential diagnosis of opioid misuse. So you have identified somebody isn't using their prescription correctly. You don't know exactly what's going on, perhaps. Um, but they might have inadequate analgesia. That's always the top for me treated correctly. Um, the disease is progressing, or they may have the opioid-resistant pain or hyperalgesia. And then I get down to, well, maybe they're self-medicating. And many, many, many patients self-medicate with opioids. And back in the 20s, actually, uh, heroin and morphine were used to treat depression. So there is real history of that. Um, do they have a substance abuse disorder, or are they diverting the drugs? So here are the, what are really the red flags, and this is some, I'm gonna have red flags and yellow flags. This is sometimes surprising to people. So deterioration in functioning at work or socially illegal activities such as selling forging um, or buying from non-medical sources, injecting or snorting the medication, multiple episodes of lost or stolen scripts, most settings have a policy, and that patients are told this up front. If you have a stolen script or a lost script, this is what our committee does. We have a policy about this. Um, and the policy has to manage not putting somebody in withdrawal versus not giving them too many extra medications. Um, resistance to changing therapy despite adverse for me, that's the big, big red flag. You can't take that Oxycontin away from me. No, it's not improving my pain at all. I'm not functioning yet. But you can't take it from me. That's the red flag for me um, when people start really arguing about that. Refusal to comply with a drug screen is simply acknowledgement that it's going to be a positive drug screen and it's going to be a problem in terms of what I, I find. There's no other way to see it. If, if you can't pee right now, I'll give you some, something to drink and we'll sit here till you can. Um, and discussion. Um, other drug abuse um, and use of multiple physicians or pharmacies. 
So the yellow flags, the things that sometimes surprise people, are complaints about need for more medication and drug hoarding. Cancer patients who have no substance abuse problem will tell you they routinely hoard their drugs. If I have a good day, take as many drugs as I need because I know I'm going to have some bad days and I might not be able to reach my provider to help. Um, so I manage my drugs in not uh, the way you want me to. Um, occasional unsanctioned dose escalations and non-adherence to other therapy recommendations. Lots of people will say yes, I'll do it, acupuncture and other so here's one other tool. I think that's the last tool, and I need to wrap up quickly. Um, it's the COM tool. It's used for ongoing risk assessment when people are in pain treatment and you're concerned about addiction or misuse of the medication. Um, coordinated care is really uh, what's important. Respect for everybody, supervision, and support for us. When I worked with the HIV team full-time, I did tons of support groups, primarily for nurses. Um, they were open to all providers, but they were primarily nurses who attended. And I think it's essential. This is a tough population. They bring out a lot of feelings among us. If we don't have a safe place to talk about it, that can really impact patient care. So, when we're approaching people with aberrant medication taking behavior, those red and yellow flags, non-judgmental approach, open-ended questions, talking about your concerns about the behavior, and looking for signs of flexibility or rigidity that uh, I have to have my OxyContin um, is important. And talking about lack of benefits. So we empathize with your pain and how difficult it is, but we're, we haven't found the right treatment. This is not the right treatment. Um, and so we're going to change our treatment, focusing on strengths, finding ways for people to cope. And so that may be dealing with a AA sponsor, an NA sponsor, a psychologist, a therapist. Um, you need to have some support so you're expanding your coping skills. Um, when we think that addiction is the issue, I cannot responsibly continue to respond, prescribe these drugs because in my estimation, as a medical provider, they are causing more harm. Period. The patient doesn't have to like it. They're not going to like it. Um, we often want to have this wonderful relationship, but our responsibility is to stop it if we really don't believe it's still so staying in the benefit-risk mindset is really important and helpful for us, I think, so we, we're not, we don't get, we don't personalize that anger. Um, and if patients are diverting, then we need to taper their medication um, to prevent withdrawal, but not continue So I just want to come back to Pam for the last minute. Um, Pam, I'm sure many of you thought maybe that was a not unusual scenario that she was at some point screaming and wanting more drugs and actually not just pain meds, wanting Valium too. What ended up happening, I'm going to make this brief because it wasn't so brief, but um, she stormed out of my office. She started screaming and continued screaming. I, any attempt to even begin a basic assessment was going nowhere. She was infuriated. 
So she stormed out of my office, and I ha had the luxury, because I'm a psychiatric provider, I didn't have another patient scheduled for another 20 minutes or so, I sat there with the door open. Um, I thought about going across the hall but to find out what had happened in her medical appointment, but I thought, you know what, if she comes back, I just had a hunch she was coming back, um, I better be sitting there. So I sat there, and eventually she did come back. Um, she came back and she had calmed down somewhat, but was still totally distraught. We closed the door. I started asking her, and I, I said to her, you know, Pam, I've known you for so long, I have no idea what's going on today. Um, they're totally different. She broke down. She actually had all this time been bringing her 11-month-old with her, and the, on that day and other days, her the father of the 11-month-old was there in the waiting room. He was stalking her. And it, that was the issue. That was the issue. She sat, I actually ended up <coughs> canceling or delaying a patient and sat with her for quite some time while we developed a safety plan. Um, and she went back out. Unfortunately, she did well for a while. She lived in a gate supportive housing. Um, she probably, two years later, uh, relapsed, stopped coming to see me. What eventually got to an inpatient drug rehab program on the day that she was discharged from the day, day treatment or the treatment program, her partner was waiting for her and did in fact kill her. So what looked like somebody drug seeking was total panic, total fear. Um, that's not that exact serious scenario, but things like that have happened frequently in our clinic, and so the ability to sit through some of that um, angst and that fury from the patient is really essential in support for ourselves in order to be able to do that. As a psychiatric provider, I can, I can do that fairly comfortably um, and take that anger, but not all providers are so comfortable taking, being the recipient of that fury and that fear. With her, it was easy because it was so unusual, so out of the But lots of people wouldn't have been able to tell her. Thank you, and please ask me some questions because I tried to cover a lot and didn't give you a lot of time to talk. don't have a comprehensive 
so don't move up here for that. Um, <laughs> but even when we, we have a really good um, social worker that will do deep relaxation and, and um, cognitive, like she, she'll walk right into the room and start doing stuff with people, but we end up with so much conflict. And I, you know, I was thinking about the patient that you and I were dealing with this woman who seems fine and then all of a sudden comes in and just reporting pain. We did try to listen to her. She did a lot of red flag behavior. We never found out that she was using. We never figured out what was going on. <laughs> and we lost, I lost sleep over it. Um, so anyway, I appreciate it. It's nice to um, just hear a different input, right, in this 2016. It, it's very negative. Right? Yeah, and I don't know where I, I'm gonna end up um, settling out <laughs> in terms of how I think it's hard for all of us, and actually, in the last two weeks, we just had a big conference in Massachusetts looking at the national pain strategy and the CDC guidelines. And we heard so many horror stories from providers in pain about how they were treated. Um, and some woman who had had a cesarean section with her first child was told, I'm a midwife, I don't prescribe opioids, period. And discussion. Uh, you know. <laughs> Crazy. I would say to you, to answer one of the questions you asked, saying to people, this is really hard, I'm going to try and be here with you. They may have the answers, they may not work right away, but I'm going to stick with it with you. That I, I believe that carries us. It's not cool to say you're not listening. Like it'd be equating not doing something with not listening. I, sometimes I try to say, what would it, what would it look like? Is it, what would it look like to you to have me listen? Do you want to see my last note? I wrote about it in my last note. But it's that is a good question, though. What would it look like? How would, how would you, how would things be different if I, if you thought I was listening? Look for some support for yourselves. <laughs> really, I, I'm, I'm dead serious. This is hard stuff. And, and our, our attitudes get in there sometimes, and that can make things worse, usually. And I think your point about wanting to be liked and wanting to, to like, try to, if we, especially in HIV care, where we, you know, we're paid to be a clinic program that retains people in care, and, you know, if we can get, um, space around how to just simply and calmly deliver a message that's that's an honest and clear message and not take it not inflame not take it personally let the person walk away actually you reminded me of something that isn't in any of these slides consistency among the team and if it's not there, the patients know it. Without question, they are expert at picking this up. Um, and so any work you can do to improve consistency will also improve overall care. It sounds like that's a big issue, and I believe me, I've worked with that. It is tough. But thank you for doing the care because this isn't easy. It's not easy. It is, the good side is I always try and reframe. It's a challenge. We're not bored. We're not putting widgets into round holes, are we? We're 
we're challenged every single day and every single hour, usually. Anybody who wants to email me or stay um, for some more questions, I'm happy. I would be patient, but I just patient, but I would stay. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.